Good morning. Good morning. I seem a little distracted. It's because I haven't finished today's wordle yet. <laughs> I've done four guesses and I'm stumped. It took Cindy five, which is a lot for her. And I, I don't know. I know you, you go in there. Have you done it already? I, I haven't done it yet today, but I've been doing it since puzzle 212. You took five also. I'm so stumped. Yes. <laughs> and, and I, I don't know if it's meaningful, but I noticed today's puzzle is number 666. Oh. Oh. Just, just saying. But here, here's a clue. The clue, the, the clue is the word is in the song we just sang. Okay, okay. <laughs> I really enjoyed Pastor Julie's sermons during the Lent uh, season featuring the last words of Jesus uh, from the cross as related by the four Gospels. I mean, I thought her sermons were powerful and thought-provoking and inspirational. And as it happens, our Disciple Bible group, we have 11 in our group this year, 12 when Dr. Mike Cheek can join us. We meet Tuesday evenings in the parlor. And all during the weeks of Lent, we happened to be reading the four Gospels, so the timing was just right. And we had some great discussions about various events that occurred during Jesus' ministry and the different ways to view seemingly simple words like life and death and truth. Right, Terry? Now that Lent and Easter are over, we are left to deal with the aftermath. So this morning, with the help of a few members of our disciple group, I want to explore those, this most profound and shocking and mysterious moment of Jesus' ministry. That would be the resurrection. You know the story. Jesus was crucified, he died, his body was placed in a tomb, and on the third day, he rose from the dead. And just as the four Gospels had different versions of Jesus' final words from the cross, they also presented Jesus' resurrection from different points of view. And I want to look at all four of those versions this morning. Now, I should mention, by the way, that one of my goals with Disciple is to make the Bible relevant to our lives here in the 21st century. The books of the Bible may have been written thousands of years ago, and they were aimed at a very different audience, but the genius of the Bible is that its insights into the human condition are as timeless and relevant to our modern world as they were back in the ancient world. And when the people of the ancient world heard the words that we're going to hear this morning, I guarantee that they would have had a very different response from ours. And in fact, each of us, when we hear these words this morning, we will have different reactions, and that's okay. How we respond to the Bible just depends on our personal sensibilities and life experiences. So let's see if we can make sense of the resurrection by reading each of the four gospel versions of that part of the story. And I've asked four members of this year's Disciple Bible group to read them for us. Let's start with the Gospel of Matthew and Janet Gemini. Once you get the microphone, once you get the microphone, there you go. Um. Matthew 28, 16 through 20. 
Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. Thank you, Janet. In Matthew, the resurrection represents a transition. Jesus transitioned from being an earthly being to a spiritual being who took his place at the right hand of God. And the 11 men who followed him also transitioned from being disciples or students to becoming apostles or teachers, missionaries, leaders. And what Janet read this morning is an important moment. It has come to be called the Great Commission. Jesus said, go out and make disciples. The Great Commission has been handed down through the generations for the past 2,000 years. It has inspired legions of people to become missionaries who travel the world spreading the gospel. I think, for example, of Albert Schweitzer, one of the most celebrated missionaries of the 20th century. He opened a hospital in a remote region of Africa in 1913, which he personally ran for the next 50 years. And in 1952, for his efforts, he was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. Now at that time, the, the recipient received a monetary award of $33,000. What did Dr. Schweitzer do with that money? He opened a separate leper colony in the same region of Africa. Or how about Mother Teresa, another legendary missionary from the 20th century. Now, as Dr. Schweitzer saw Africa, he saw a great need there. Of course, Mother Teresa saw a great need in India. And she went to work and served the poorest of the poor in the slums of Calcutta. And she too was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. This was in 1979. And at that time, the award was more than $190,000, which, by the way, Mother Teresa refused to accept. Instead, she asked that it be donated to the poor of India directly. What about us? You know, the Great Commission is directed at us as well. In fact, the mission statement of the United Methodist Church, where we are sitting today, the mission statement is pretty simple. It says, and I quote, the mission of the church is to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. There it is. The United Methodist Church is the Great Commission in action. And let's not forget, you and I are the church. All right, so there's one, one gospel. First point we made about the resurrection, transition or transformation. Let's move to number two and the gospel of Mark with Ann Janet Cron. It's Mark 16, verses 1 through 8. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, 
brought spices so that they may go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. They had been saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? When I looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled, rolled back. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, do not be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has been raised. He is not here. Look, there is the place that laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. So they went out and fled from the tomb, for terror and amazement had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Thank you, Janice. They said nothing to anyone. I hope you were in church last Sunday, as Lisa was mentioning for our Easter service. Maybe you watched it from home. It was very special. And it began with the traditional proclamation. He is risen. He is risen indeed. That's what we celebrated last Sunday, the risen Christ. And we were happy to share that with the people who were sitting around us in church that morning. But what about when the service was over and we walked out those doors? How many of us shared the good news with people that we encountered out there? at the supermarket, or the bank, or the post office, or school, or work. How many of us said to people out there, he is risen, he is risen indeed. We don't do that, do we? We are those women who fled the tomb that Sunday morning. The angel told them, go tell the disciples what you have seen, but they didn't do that. They kept it to themselves because they were afraid. And we don't do that either. I mean, it's like we do church like Las Vegas. What happens in church stays in church, <laughs> right? Why is that? Why are we also afraid? Afraid that people will think we are crazy? I think back to when I was still anchoring at CNBC down at the New York Stock Exchange. I would arrive at the exchange at 1.30 in the afternoon, just about 90 minutes before we went on the air. And every Friday, there was a young man who walked up and down Wall Street preaching about Jesus and the resurrection. Back and forth he went in front of the Stock Exchange and Federal Hall of the statue of George Washington, yelling as loud as he could, every single Friday, rain or shine or snow. He didn't use a bullhorn because he didn't need one. He was very loud, and I have to believe that he was probably hoarse by the end of each Friday. And how did people react? I looked at people as I would walk past. I suspect they thought he was crazy. Some rolled their eyes, some shook their heads, and everyone just kept going. Nobody stopped to listen to him, except the occasional tour group who would gather 
in the square there in front of the stock exchange. Many times, though, those tour groups didn't even speak English. <laughs> so they just watched the spectacle of this young man. But it didn't stop him from showing up every Friday afternoon to preach the good news. He was carrying out the Great Commission and the angel's instructions. So what do we say? Wait a minute, that's not what I'm going to say. <laughs> Where's page five? There it is. I'm looking to do it. He was carrying out the Great Commission and the angel's instructions because what's important, there we go, it's not what happens in church. It's what happens out there. You read it. Back to the Gospels. This time the Gospel of John and Rick Perdue. John 20, verses 19 through 29. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And after he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands, and put my finger in the mark of the nails, and my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were again in the house, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Thank you, Rick. Now this is the story that's usually told on this Sunday, the Sunday after Easter. All of the disciples except for Thomas are gathered back in that upper room where they held the, the Last Supper a few days earlier, and Jesus appears to them which they then later tell Thomas about. In other words, he had to hear about the resurrection secondhand, just like you and me. And what did Thomas say? I don't believe it. What do we say? Come on, admit it. You've had your doubts. I mean, Jesus is nailed to a cross. He dies, there's no doubt about that. He's buried in a tomb, and then three days later, he rises from the dead? Really? 
Thomas doubted it. But he came to believe because he came face to face with the risen Christ. But what about us? We can't enjoy that same privilege. How do we get from doubt to believe? Is there a bridge somewhere in between? There is. It's called faith. The book of Hebrews, chapter 11, verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Believing in things not seen, like maybe the risen Christ. Let's turn to Eugene Peterson's great book, The Message, which is a paraphrasing of the Bible. We have several copies in the church library. Here's what he says about Hebrews chapter 11, and I quote, The fundamental fact of existence is that this trust in God, this faith, is the firm foundation under everything that makes life worth living. It's, in, it's our handle on what we cannot see. The act of faith is what distinguished our ancestors and set them above the crowd. This faith is the firm foundation under everything that makes life worth living. A few verses later, the book of Hebrews mentions a man named Enoch. Now, Enoch made a very brief appearance in the book of Genesis. There's that long genealogy, you may remember, from Adam to Noah. And with each generation, Genesis mentions the man's name, and yes, they were all men. Don't hate the messenger. <laughs> Genesis mentions each man's name, who his father was, who his son was, how many years he lived, and then it says, and he died. Now this happens with every man mentioned in this long genealogy from Adam to Noah, except for Enoch. Here's what the Bible says. Jared was the father of Enoch. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he became the father of Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after the birth of Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. It doesn't say that Enoch died. Now, the genealogy explicitly says everybody else in this long family history died, but it didn't say that Enoch had died. So theologians and scholars have long believed that Enoch was a man of such strong faith that God took him to heaven without him having to die. Here's what Eugene Peterson said about that in the message. By an act of faith, Enoch skipped death completely. They looked all over and couldn't find him because God had taken him we know on the basis of reliable testimony that before he was taken, he pleased God. Now, it's impossible to please God apart from faith. And why? Because anyone who wants to approach God must believe both that God exists and that God cares enough to respond to those who seek him. Anyone who wants to approach God 
must believe both that God exists and that God cares enough to respond to those who seek him. Everybody has their doubts about the resurrection at some point, just like Thomas did. I mean, it's a fantastic story, but not everyone comes to believe. What are they missing? What was Thomas missing? Faith. One more resurrection story. I saved the Gospel of Luke for the last with Terry Stevens. Luke 24, verses 36 through 53. Jesus stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and terrified and thought they were seeing a ghost. He said to them, Why are you frightened? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Look at my hands and my feet. See that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. While in their joy they were disbelieving and still wandering, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he ate it in their presence. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Messiah is to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day and that repentance and forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and see, I am sending upon you what my Father promised. So stay here in the city until you have been clothed with the power from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he was blessing them, he withdrew from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they were continually in the temple blessing God. Thank you, Terry. Now there's a lot going on here, obviously. Jesus appears to the disciples. They think they've seen a ghost, so he lets them touch him. Then they eat together. And then after supper they talk, and Jesus reminds them, and us, what the whole point of his ministry was and is. That repentance and forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed in his name to all nations. And then they watch as Jesus is lifted up to heaven. And what do they do? They go to the temple and bless God with great joy just like we did on Easter Sunday last week. And there it is, that moment, the resurrection. The resurrection is meant to be celebrated. It's not a secret to be kept in a tomb or a story only to be told inside the walls of a church. It is an event meant to be celebrated here, there, and everywhere. Friends, let there be no doubt 
the resurrection is real. It happened 2,000 years ago, and it continues to happen today. And it happens for a reason. Even though it occurs at the end of each of the four Gospels, it is not the end of the story. It is only the beginning. It is now our story. Just as the disciples made the transition to become apostles who proclaimed the good news, our task is to do the same. Remember the mission statement of the United Methodist Church, to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. And remember this also, we are the church. Amen. Amen. Amen.